Amen. Praise God. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. Lots of great stuff happening, um, and we've had lots of great stuff happening. I've actually been traveling for two weeks, so it is good to be home. And uh, in those two weeks, we had obviously uh, Steve Heffernan made into an elder. And so I just want to add my voice. We heard such wonderful stories about Steve and what a blessing it is. Um, you know, when during COVID first hit and the churches were shut down, we here uh, had a hybrid model. You could come, you couldn't come. And I remember one Sunday, Steve and Robin were the only people sitting here uh, as we preached, <laughs> mostly into a camera, but they were here live. Uh, I'm pretty sure he gave me COVID, but it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, but more importantly, more importantly, uh, we know that Steve is a man who is about the kingdom of God. And uh, that is such a blessing to be able to serve with him and really looking forward to having him be part of the elders here. So that's uh, something that I, I wasn't here to, to be part of the ceremonies, but definitely looking forward to what's going to happen going beyond that. So we also last week retreated to um, some powerful words by Paul. And uh, even though I wasn't here, I was listening to the sermon. And those words were out of Philippians 121, where Paul tells us to live as Christ and to die is gain. And as we move forward today, we're going to be re-examining and really kind of covering a little bit of uh, old territory of what Pastor Daniel spoke about last week, um, because then we're going to get to explore a theme, and we're going to need to go back to go forward as we explore this theme that is really near and dear to my heart. Daniel actually touched on it three weeks ago uh, when we had the baptism. He touched on it two weeks ago when he opened up the book of Philippians, and it was a part of last week's sermon um, we're going to see as I go back over those scriptures. And so it's something that comes up time and time and time again in scripture. And so whenever we see things that come up time and time again in scripture, we have to at some point assess that they're important. And we have to understand that it's close and dear to God's heart, right? We should give attention to the things that are most covered in the Bible. Too often we want to spend time fighting over the, you know, obscure passage that no one 100% understands exactly what it means. But that's not where our time should be spent. We really should be focusing on those things that God brings to our attention over and over and over again. And this is one of those things. <clears throat> it's a subject that is very close to God's heart. And the subject is unity. And that is how Paul is going to begin Philippians 2. Uh, if we look at the first verse there, it says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. In other words, be a unified body. <clears throat> now for me, it's kind of funny because the first lesson I ever learned about this subject came from Pastor Rob, and it wasn't in a teaching. This was a live example. <clears throat> we had been put together on a commission, and... Somebody in this commission had said something that had me, like, fuming. I mean, I was steamed. And I guess Rob picked up on this. He must have seen, like, the smoke coming out of my head or something like that. Because after this meeting, he pulled me aside in the parking. He reminded me today. He's like, it was in the parking lot. He remembers this incident pretty well. I remember this incident pretty well. And he was trying to remind me what it was about. I was like, I know exactly what it was about. I'm not going to discuss that. But, uh... <clears throat> You know, he pulled me aside, and he said to me this, he, you know, not the exact words, but it was kind of the sentiment. He said, Ben, you know, it is possible to be theologically correct, but spiritually wrong. 
And uh, that hit home, and that hit really, really hard. Um, because academically, I felt I was on point. And then he went on to say, he says, there are just times um, when the unity of the Spirit is more important than the point you're trying to make. And man, that really hit hard. Um, and at the time, I really wasn't open to it, to be completely honest with you, and I had to go take some time, but it really became something that I began to study. And I began to see more and more in the Word of God um, when, you know, this is a topic that is really close to God's heart. And it's something that definitely I went home and studied, and I could see that that day God was speaking to me, not just a man. He had a message for me. And that message is part of what I want to share with you guys today. Like I said, um, Pastor Daniel has touched on it, and he's touched on it from two ends, right? He has spoken in the last few weeks about the evils of division. And he has warned us that division is Satan's primary tool to destroy the church. And we're going to see that today. We're going to see why that is. And Paul will raise the issue of division later on in Philippians. But unity is not just a lack of division. You can stop the divisiveness and not necessarily attain unity, at least not godly unity. And so unity in the spirit is something much more. It's not just about agreement. Unity is about a cohesiveness and a togetherness where you're all walking together in the same way from a mutual act of submission that is for a greater purpose. And that's what we want to talk about today. The unity of the spirit is going to require that we pick up our cross daily die to ourselves and follow Christ, as Paul is about to tell us. It's not just about agreeing, it is living out that agreement for God's greater purpose. And true unity is going to challenge us and it's going to require us to think and act differently, to have a different perspective about the things that we do or come into contact with. In other words, it's going to force us to renew our minds it requires us to have God's view of things, God's view of ourselves, and God's view of others, God's view of our circumstances, and of course, God's view about what our priorities are meant to be. So we're looking today at Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. We're going to read the entire section. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. <clears throat> so, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning. Father, we pray that um, as we study your word that you would open up our hearts to hear the truth of it. Father, to do what it calls us to do, to renew our mind 
that we might better have the mind of Christ and live out the humility that is Christ for that purpose which is yours, which is your glorification and the spreading of the gospel. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We pray um, for our hearts to be receptive to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this section of scripture begins with one of those wonderful transitory words like therefore, right? When you see the word therefore, you have to ask the word, what's it there for? Well, so is one of those words. It means that there's a continuation of what he was talking about previously. <clears throat> and that's where Paul begins. This tells us that Paul is, is not starting a new thought, but he's going to give basically a rehearsal to what he's already told us. Paul is referencing what Pastor Daniel preached about last week. Specifically, that section that begins with that all-important line, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. <clears throat> Excuse me. Words that Pastor Daniel emphasized can only be truly understood and uttered by Christians, those who have accepted Jesus' lordship. Others may believe in an eternity. Others may talk about paradise. But if you ask them to describe what that paradise is, they're going to give you some kind of fuzzy notion of a blissful place that's usually filled with a lot of carnal pleasures or whatever it might be, or the opposite. Right? You have a lot of the Eastern religions that will say, no, 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 we're going to reach this state of nirvana or perfection or whatever it is in which you have no physical needs. And it's, so it's one extreme or the other. Um, and that's not us, though, not as Christians. Because as Christians, we know it different. Pastor Daniel pointed out last week, and it'll be essential to this week's message, because what makes heaven heaven is not some chance to sit on puffy clouds with little chubby angels who strum in our harp or some nonsense like that. I'm almost positive that is nobody's picture of heaven or any real sense of heaven. But that's not what makes heaven heaven. Nor is heaven the absent or the lack of need for any physical anything. Um, it's interesting to me that both we are promised that there will be food in heaven, right? There is the tree of life which is brought back in the kingdom of heaven if you read the Revelation. And the fact that our God is a sensual God. You know, we've been, we've been doing the blog, we've been doing uh, the, the book of Exodus. And when God meets the elders... And he meets Moses on the hill. You know what they do? They eat. It's astounding. <laughs> they sit down and have a meal with our God. God gave us senses for a purpose, and he's not going to take them away in heaven. So it's neither of those things. What makes heaven heaven is God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God. And more importantly, what makes heaven heaven for us is our relationship to that God. You see, it is God, the source and creator of all that is good, that is ultimately going to make heaven bliss. And Jesus made this clear throughout his ministry. He told his disciples in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Not a means to life, not the possibility of life, I am the life. And the word there that is used is zoe. Zoe means the fullness of life, life and all that it is meant to be. And Jesus said, that's who I am. And he told the same thing even to his enemies, to the Pharisees in John 5, 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Zoe. The implication of this is powerful. And it is beautiful because it means that we can taste that life here and now. 
See, as a Christian, heaven doesn't begin in some tomorrow world. Heaven begins here. And Paul says, to live is Christ. To live is to begin the experience that we are promised we will have in full when we leave this earth. Now, on earth, it's blunted. We have to acknowledge that. On earth, we don't have the fullness of that experience, and it's primarily our sin that prevents us from doing that, our sins and everybody else's sin. We live in a fallen, broken world of sin. But we can begin the experience, and we are promised that when we get to heaven, we will fully know that experience, that at last we will have the full experience of the life that God has promised us. That is the substance of the bliss that we will experience in heaven, is knowing God fully. Now, it's hard to picture here because of all the fallenness and brokenness, and it's hard to wrap our minds off, but, you know, the way to think about it is to appreciate that God is the originator and source of anything that we think of as good. And so... Does anybody here like skiing? Any skiers in the room? It's been a great ski season, right? Been phenomenal. We've had more snow in Mammoth than I think they've ever had. They're talking about a year-round ski season, which is mind-blowing. We've had that much snow. But if you enjoy skiing, then you realize that God is the one who created snow. He's the one who creates the physics that makes it such a blast. And that kind of gives you an idea. He is the source of that goodness. And what we know, however, is that like skiing, you get to the end of a run, on this earth, all good things must come to an end. But you see, not in heaven. In heaven is that sensation of goodness in perpetuity. And that's kind of the way we can kind of understand it. That the source of goodness extends that to us in all forms when we get to heaven. But you know what? Heaven goes beyond that. Because God not only promises that we will fully know the experience of life that he has called us to. He tells us that when we get to heaven, we will also be fully known, as he says in 1 Corinthians 13, that we will fully know and we will be fully known. Think about that. How much of our longing on this earth is to be seen or to be heard and ultimately to be understood? And we will get that when we get to heaven. Finally, it'll be like, they get me. (laughs) I don't have to explain myself. I don't have to wear some costume that is a caricature of who I really am. Wherever I go, I can be me because they get me. You know, God just thinks of everything. And he says that will be part of the experience of heaven. And how much of the discord that we see on this earth will be eliminated because they get me. And so much of what Paul is saying as he ends chapter one and goes into chapter two is that he is saying that just like the experience we get to experience a slice of heaven because we get to know Jesus and the more we know Jesus, the more we experience the fullness of all that joy. He says on earth, it is our responsibility to begin the experience of, oh, they get me. You see, that is meant to be the body of Christ. We are supposed to come here and be known by one another in such an intimate fashion that, oof, I'm home. I can rest here. I can be myself here. And in that, we can be in full accord. And Paul started this in chapter, tw- chapter 1, verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he's going to go on to tell us what it means, what it looks like. What does a worthy life of the gospel look like? And look at what he says. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, 
with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Unity is a worthy life of the gospel. And that is how he began in chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord in one mind. He repeats that we are to have the same mind, share the same love, and be in full accord. Unity in the Spirit. Paul encourages this using some strange phraseology, though. And then, oddly, he makes his appeal personal. You see, he doesn't say complete Christ's joy by being unified. He says complete my joy. It's kind of odd. And then this phrase that he uses is, if there is any encouragement. Now, I'm no grammarian. I'm actually pretty terrible at grammar. But I know enough what a subject and an object is. And I get the subject of that scripture. It says, if there's any encouragement in Christ. So the subject is clearly Christ. He's the one encouraging. But what's the object? Who's being encouraged? He goes on to say that if there's any comfort from love, who's being comforted? Is there any affection and sympathy? Who is the person who's experiencing these? And as you read it, it seems like Paul is appealing to the reader, but then he switches it around when he says, complete my joy. And so is it Paul's encouragement or is it our encouragement? And there's a lot to tease out of this scripture, first of all, because Paul is talking about joy. And we have to remember that he's a man sitting in prison. And Daniel covered a lot of that, so I'm not going to cover it again. But in your home groups, I pray you will. I pray you will ex- re-examine how can a man in prison find joy? How can his joy be completed? What does he mean by that? Um, and it's a reminder to all of us that our circumstances are not meant to define our joy. And that is a calling that, that we should um, be considering as we, as we talk about this scripture. But... More so than that, I want to know, what is Paul attached to that joy? Because he says, well, we, we know that encouragement in Christ is attached to that joy. We know that comfort is attached to that joy. But he goes beyond that because he implies that the real joy he will experience is hearing about the unity in the spirit of the body of Christ. That is Paul's appeal. It's not just that the reader is to be encouraged or the Philippians or us, but Paul says, when I hear about your unity, I'm encouraged. When I see your comfort in the Lord leads you to greater peace in the body and and greater focus on the gospel, I am comforted. And it's a reminder of the interconnectedness of the body of Christ. Paul is exercising what he is encouraging. Paul is saying, being of one mind, because I'm of one mind with you. I'm in it with you. I'm there with you even as I sit in this prison. So we should all be encouraged together. We should all be comforted together. He is trying to be an example to us. He is reflecting the mutuality of the gospel even as he sits in a dank, dark, miserable prison. He wants us to know that when he hears a good report, it brings him joy. And in likewise, he is saying, share in my suffering. When you hear a report of my suffering, that should make you go to your knees so that there's this mutuality. And it makes sense, right? We do this in our own bodies. We all know that if we've had a bad day or we sprained our ankle or we feel a little bit sick, what do we do? We try to find a little pleasure to balance it out, right? A bowl of ice cream (laughs) goes a long way in making the day a better day, whatever has gone on. 
And we counterbalances the difficulties of life with the pleasures of life. I know for some it's shopping. It's not my thing, but I, I get for some people. And that's what Paul is saying here. We know that mutuality. And so he says, look, the same is true for the body of Christ. Even in my suffering and imprisonment, I find hope in hearing a good report about you guys. But it's really important to understand what the good report is. Because the good report is not that the Philippians are encouraged. The good report is not that they are comforted or that they are experiencing sympathy, right? The good report is what? It's the same thing he said about being worthy of the gospel. The worthiness of our walk and the good report is being one in the spirit of one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It is unity that brings Paul joy when he hears about the unity of the body. When we join the body of Christ and we shift the, the look from inward to the greater purpose that is held by us as a community, Paul says, that brings me joy. Singular in mind and singular in purpose. And so the question becomes, how do we achieve it? And what is the purpose? Paul has told us the what we need, which is unity. Now he's going to tell us how we achieve that unity. And then he's going to close at this section with what the purpose of that unity is. So we pick up in verse 3. Here's the how. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There it is. There's no secret to unity in the body. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And that term nothing is not some secret, you know, Greek word that needs to be parsed out. Nothing means nothing. It means that we are to have a continuous guard on self. Because self is the constant enemy which is encouraged by Satan because self-focus is what leads to disunity. Satan knows that there's no quicker way to create disunity than getting people to focus on themselves, right? We as a society cannot be surprised that we are living through one of the most divisive times known in a time that is literally defined as the selfie generation. <laughs> There's no surprise as to what the results are. And just here's some anecdotal stories from Pew Research. People in advanced economies say their society is more divided than before the pandemic. From the Associated Press, it is no longer just Republican versus Democrat or liberal versus conservative. It is the 1% versus the 99%. Rural versus urban. White men against the world. Climate doubters clash with believers. Bathrooms have become battlefields. Borders are battle lines. Sex and race, faith and ethnicity. The melting pot seems to be boiling over. Self-focus can only lead to greater division, and we are seeing it all around us. But worse than that, it's happening in the church. As much as it is happening in the world. 
Me and mine are the surest ways to a fight. You want to prove it out, do what I call the 215 rule. Take any group of two-year-olds, give them one toy, and wait five minutes. <laughs> and see what happens. Mine, 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 mine. <laughs> Chaos is about to break out. <laughs> Me and mine. Selfish ambition is meant to be understood as a thing that promotes our self-interest that is better and preferable for me. And conceit can really be translated into vain conceit. And vain conceit is seeking things that make us feel and look better, right? I want to look better to the world. I want a pat on the back. I want people to think something of me. And this can happen in any forum. I have to tell you, pastors battle this like crazy. You know what it's like when Pastor Daniel is like, you're preaching next week? Yes, <laughs> the stage is mine, <laughs> right? And the question becomes, am I up here for me? Or am I up here for a greater purpose? Because one is not God-glorifying. And it is all about motive. Selfish ambition is to be understood as something that the selfish is the problem, not the ambition part. Paul makes it very, very clear. He's not saying ambition is bad. And we're actually going to end today with a section of scripture that's going to show us that God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are extremely ambitious about certain things. Ambition is God-given. The desire to do and accomplish things is a gift from God. Ambition is good. The question is, what is our motive that motivates us to live out those ambitions? And what is the purpose for which we are seeking in that ambition? That is the question. You see, true humility will never discourage success. It will rather produce success by encouraging us to do the right thing in the right way and for the right reason. The problem is not ambition. The problem is our selfish motives and the purposes that we are seeking. And Paul is going to conclude by telling us what our purpose should be after he gets through the hard part about telling us how we actually live this thing out. He has told us we need to seek unity by not being selfish. And now he's going to say how we can do it. And then he will walk us through the, the why. Here's the how. But in humility, there is the means, is humility. Notice he doesn't say humbling yourself. Humility. Humility is something that comes to us as we seek the unity of God. If you spend your time trying to humble yourself, what are you doing? You're spending all your time thinking about yourself. The last thing you're going to be is humble. <laughs> so, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he'd emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and then going further humbling himself even to the point of death, even death on the cross. So how do we live ambitiously in the spirit instead of from selfish ambition? By cultivating the heart of a servant. That is the summary of what Paul is saying here. And the scripture is painting for us a picture of what the heart of a servant looks like. Paul says it begins with humility. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, pursuing selfish goals, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is the formula we've talked about before, right? Because we've said you've got to be very careful with humility that it doesn't lead you to a false humility. 
Because humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not saying to yourself, I'm not important. I'm, you know, the self-deprecating mode some people can get into. It's thinking of yourself less and thinking of others more. The, the sentiment here is almost more quantitative than it is qualitative. Think of other people and their needs and, and what they are trying to achieve more than yourself. Note, Paul does not say make others more important than yourself. So it's not a matter of substance. But it's the reality that our thoughts naturally tend to ourselves. We know how we feel. To figure out how somebody else feels, you've got to spend some time communicating with them. That's a pain. And so we have to spend that time and he makes this even clearer in the next sentence in verse 4 because he says, let's, let's get rid of the false humility by saying that you have to be self-deprecating. He says, look each of you not only to his own interest, which implies that you are looking to your interest, but also to the interest of others. Paul says count others as more significant, but it doesn't mean ignoring your personhood. You're not a, a worthless dog who's meant to just be taken advantage of. You are a child of God who has been made in the image of Christ. And so our focus is on, to be, is, on to be, is to be on others, but that's to fight the natural inclination we have to think about ourselves. But it doesn't mean that we put ourselves away. We have to take care of our own business at the same time while we try and spend our time focusing on others. It's the same command as Jesus tells us. Love others as much as we love ourselves. It's recognizing that love for self is natural. And we have to turn that around and love others. And Paul is going to put some real qualifiers around this because he wants to make sure we do it right. And the biggest qualifier of all is who he gives us to be the example for that. In verse five, he says this, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. True humility, godly humility, requires a renewed mind and putting on the mind of Christ. Let's think carefully through the implications of this scripture because Pastor Daniel has already covered the wonders of thinking about the fact that we have the mind of Christ. We've talked about that in this church before. That when we become saved, we are given the spirit of God and given the ability to have the mind of Christ. That's an amazing thing. But what Paul is talking about here is that though we have been given the mind of Christ, we have to use the mind of Christ. He says, have this mind, or use this mind, or another way to think of it is exercise this mind, which has already been given to you in Christ Jesus. We have to put it to use. I particularly like the word to use the word exercise there because it forces us to realize we have to do something right? We have to do something to exercise the mind of Christ. And for those of us who like memes, it's, it's, like that, uh, it's like the meme of the two wolves inside of you, right? And the one you feed is the one that's going to grow. And that's the first thing we have to do is we have to feed the mind of Christ. Because though we've been given the mind of Christ, God has not removed our fleshly mind from us. He gives us the command to, re to renew our mind. And so there's always this battle. And the one you feed is the one that you're going to grow. If you're always listening to worldly music, if you're spending all your time in worldly activities, if all of your time is spent with friends who are not of the body, what's going to grow in your life? That part of you, the fleshly side of you. And it's not that those things are sins. 
It's not that those things are even necessarily bad, right? This is the point Paul makes very, very clear in 1 Corinthians 10. He says all things are lawful. You can do those things. But he says not all things are helpful. And so we have a choice to be made. That's the exercise. We have to do something to have that mind of Christ. We have to feed it with God's word so that we can think biblically. And then the second part, we have to listen to the mind of Christ because we're always going to have that battle inside of us, because we're always going to have um, our flesh, which is going to have its own needs and desires and is going to want to take the selfish path. We have to actually listen to the word of God. And of course, if we're feeding our, our godly mind, it's going to be easy to listen to it because that's the voice that's going to dominate. But if we're not feeding it, then the other voice is going to dominate and we're going to have to really spend time quiet or before the Lord, whatever it might take, to tease out what is God telling me in this instance. And then the last thing we have to do is we have to simply live it. We have to pick up our cross and walk daily. Having the mind of Christ is not an academic exercise, right? That is what Rob was trying to teach me all those years ago. Is I, I know you know the scriptures, but are you living them out? <laughs> because we have to live them out. And it's so easy to get caught up and want to study all the time and, and know so much stuff. But the, body, the Bible warns us. It warns us that knowledge puffs up leads to pride, and pride leads to the downfall. But love, love builds up. See, that's the lesson of unity, is that we have to live out the world in love, because that is our calling. And so we have to live it, and living it requires stepping out in faith, because so often it's not going to make sense. You see, it doesn't make sense to turn the other cheek, it doesn't make sense to bless our enemy that's trying to take us down. It doesn't make sense when your office worker is a pain to pray for them and even pray that they get that promotion, <laughs> which means they're going to talk to you more and bother you more. See, none of that makes sense. But the word of God doesn't make sense, and being a Christian isn't meant to make sense. We are not earthly, practical people. We are citizens of heaven and servants of the king who Paul goes on to describe, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself even further, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, that did not make sense. It did not make sense for Jesus, the Son, the second person in the Godhead, to empty himself, take on the form of a servant, be born in the likeness of men, to empty himself further to die for your sins and mine. But that is the mind of Christ. To empty oneself means to give up all the rights, the privileges, and the benefits of the place and position to which Jesus was entitled without giving up any of the responsibilities. And we Americans should appreciate what it is because we're about our rights. <laughs> we don't like giving those up. But the Son of God gave them up. First, just think about the fact that Jesus had to give up some qualities to take on a form of man. For example, on earth, he was, he was not omnipresent and couldn't be. All of a sudden, 
The Son of God was limited by space and time, though he had never been. And then he gave up the privileges and benefits of the Godhead. You know, Pastor Rob likes to point out that Jesus, who had from the beginning of time only known the glory of the presence, that is his dwelling with the Father and the Spirit, and who from the beginning of creation has known nothing but constant praise and worship, Read the book of Revelations where the elders are constantly throwing their crowns before his throne. Holy, 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 they shout. Worthy is the Lamb. And that's what he gave up. In a city with streets paved with gold to come down to this earth and walk on bricks and cobblestone and dirt most of the time. Filthy feet. emptied himself of all of those things. And these are just examples. But then we are told he humbled himself further, even to the point of death. Death death that had no claim on him because Jesus had never sinned. But he allowed himself to experience death. Why? To save us from the death that we deserved. You see, Jesus knows that to really esteem others, our focus must be on what matters most. And what matters most is every single person's eternity. That is ultimately what matters. And that's what Jesus cares about most. It is what he wants us to care about most. And if we focus on eternity, then it's a lot easier for us to do the right thing in the right way and for the right reason. See, if you're sharing the gospel and you desire to be right, or you're simply trying to win an argument then you're not really sharing the gospel. (laughs) But if you're sharing the gospel and your concern is with the eternity and where the person you are speaking to is going to speak is going to end up in life, you're going to change your tone. What you're going to most want to do is share love, the love of God that he shared with you and the grace of God that he shared with you. And that'll come through in sharing the gospel as you are concerned about that man's eternity. True humility aligns doing the right thing in the right way for the right reason. But we can't stop there because as much as it was God's will to save mankind, as much as it was the reason for which Jesus came to earth, it was not Jesus' ultimate purpose. And that is where Paul is going to lead us. He's going to tie all this together with the next three verses. 9 through 11, he's going to say this. He said, therefore... God, because of Jesus' sacrifice, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, let's begin this section from the end because we said we were going to close with the why. And that is the why. What is the purpose for which Christ came? What is the purpose for which we are called into unity? Look at those last words. To the glory of God the Father. This ultimately is the mind of Christ. This is the purpose that binds everything we've talked about. This is the unifying principle for all things if we call ourselves believers. Whatever else it might mean to be a Christian God's glory should be the singular purpose for which we live. It is the purpose for which we were created. You know, this is summed up best by the uh, Westminster Confession and the Catechisms 
Catechisms are just questions and answers that you ask as a reminder to what the principles are. And the number one, question one is, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that was Jesus's focus and ultimate purpose. And here is where it all comes together. Because the Bible is so focused on our unity. Because number one, next to God's holiness, which is the greatest uh, description of his character, Unity is one of the traits that most exemplifies God. And number two, our unity, as we are about to learn, is the means by which the world will actually get to see the glory of God. We learn both of these things from Jesus himself in Jesus' prayer to the Father in John 17. And we're going to read beginning in verse 20. We're going to read verses 20 to 23. This is one of Jesus' last prayers. He's meeting in the upper room with his disciples, and he prays this to the Father. And he goes on to say, he says, My prayer, Lord, Father, is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father. Then he tells us why. One, it exemplifies the nature of God. Just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. Then he tells us the second reason that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Wow. That's a powerful statement. You see, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have lived in perfect union for all eternity. One God, three persons, in perfect harmony. These three godly persons who make up the Godhead live in harmony, how? By always seeking the interest of the other. Look at the last part of our scripture. Because of Jesus' obedience, God has exalted him above every name that is to be named so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Why? So Jesus can take that glory and hand it right back to the Father. Because that's Jesus' desire. Jesus receives and accepts glory not for himself, but that he might bring glory to his Father. This harmonious relationship is seen throughout Scripture. We are told that Jesus always seeks the will of the Father. And then we are told that the Spirit not only seeks the will of of Jesus, but that he is going to take what is Jesus's and give it to us. That's what he will pass along. Jesus even goes on to say he will never speak of himself, but he will speak of me. Jesus tells us he was sent by the Father. And then elsewhere he tells us he is sending the Spirit. You see, each of the Godheads, always submitting, surrendering, seeking to serve the other. Jesus says his intent was to glorify the Father, and then in John 16, 14, he says this about the Spirit. He, the Spirit, will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. We just see this time and time again in the Scripture. We are shown that within the Godhead, the three persons are continuously seeking to give, to bless, and to benefit the other members of the Godhead. <laughs> what does that sound like? if not making others more significant than yourself. That is the mind of Christ. 
And our salvation is an invitation to join into this harmonious family of unity. How else could we possibly be expected to live but in unity? (laughs) That is what we are called to. It is the very nature of God and God's family. And notice what Jesus says binds it all together in verse 22 of John 17. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me. He's already given us that glory that they may be one as we are one. Now we clearly don't see the fullness of that fulfillment. We are not living the glory that we will live in our glorified bodies when we are in heaven. And we certainly don't always feel like it. (laughs) But that is our true position. And that is where our mind needs to be. We are citizens of heaven, co-heirs with Christ in his kingdom. Jesus has lifted us up to share in the same place that he shares with his father. And the more we grasp that reality, the more completely we can live out the scriptures that we've read today. We share the glory of Christ, but it is for a purpose. It's for experiencing the unity of the Godhead. True unity will come about the more heavenly-minded we are and the more heavenly-minded we become. That is having the mind of Christ. And that is the joy in which Paul can share. That is the encouragement that will cause us to live in one accord. And when we do that, what's going to happen? Did you guys catch the second part of that in both verses 21 and 23? Jesus tells us twice, when we build that kind of body where we are living in harmony, let me say this, it's not just here in the church. That harmony begins in your home. That harmony is in your workplaces. That harmony is in the relationships that you walk through the doors with and bring into this church. And then we experience it as a body. And when we are living in that kind of humility that leads to unity, he says this, may they be one so that the world may believe that you sent me. And then in verse 23, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Can we see why unity is so important? It is the ultimate witness to the world. The world will know that Jesus is from God and that he has sent us when we live in the type of unity that the world can only hope to achieve through organizations like the United Nations or whatever the heck it is. There's a united body. (laughs) I mean, think about it. The world doesn't have this capability. And when they see it in us, it points back to our God. Do we understand why Satan wants to divide the church so desperately? Because nothing will hinder the gospel more than a divided church. And nothing will spread the gospel faster than a united church, humbly serving each other to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Pastor Daniel's going to come up in a little bit and lead us in communion, which is just beautiful timing. Sometimes God's just... (laughs) Because communion is ultimately where we see the unity Right? I always like to say the blood of Jesus is thicker than anything. Thicker than blood, thicker than water. But before we do, I want to conclude with um, just finishing up with the CCPV logo. For those of you who know it, some of you may not. But the CCPV logo is what you can take home today to remember this sermon. Right? You're not going to remember every word that I've said. But this picture is what we are all about here. Right? The top, upper, my right, your left are two arrows pointing up to God. That is the bliss that is to be found in knowing God which we get to enjoy on this earth through our relationship with Christ and we get to enjoy in all eternity. Then there is the comfort and the encouragement that comes from what? 
Top left corner is God knowing us, being fully known, taking comfort in the knowledge that God sees us, he understands us, he knows us. And then if you look to the bottom right here, that is the community that we share, that we are building here to desire and seek to know one another. That is the encouragement and the comfort that's gonna build unity in this body. And what's gonna happen if we do that? Well, that's the my left, your right, bottom corner. When we do that, that's gonna take the message out into the world and they will know the glory of our God because of the unity that they see in us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for your word, Father. We thank you for this thing we call the body. Father, we wanna leave out of here today encouraged, comforted, and reminded, Lord God, of the humility of Christ that brought us into this family and how we get to become a part of the glory that is shared through you alone. And then we wanna take that out into the world, Lord God. Father, may this message stir us, may it encourage us, may it strengthen us to live the glory that is a reflection of your holiness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.